Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. Thank you so much. I am naturally indebted to truly, truly great. And the Oscar goes to. Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy. Action. Showtime. All right. (laughs) Let's get it started, I guess. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to the show. This is the 14th episode of Thank the Academy, and we will be discussing the 14th Best Picture winner, How Green Was My Valley. And the 14th Academy Awards. Huzzah. Hooray. We're getting into the mid-teens. Yeah, yeah. 14, that's two weeks worth of listening if you wanted to binge this once a day. Or one day of listening <laughs> if you want to yeah. binge it for, <laughs> for 14, 14 hours. hours. <laughs> that's true. It's probably like 15 because of yeah, some 15 discrepancies, hours-ish. but options <laughs> you're welcome to listen to the show however you want yeah you don't binge do any once a day <laughs> once every week as long as you're listening yeah that's all that matters yeah and you know you can always go on apple Podcasts and write us a review if you like it <gasps> yeah do it what <laughs> anyways so at the beginning of every episode uh you know the drill if you're a long time listener thanks for being with us if you've done all 14 episodes you know <laughs> If not, uh, we start every episode with the news about Penny. The our Penny news. little cavalier spaniel. She has a little bit of beagle in her as well. But she looks like almost a full-bred cavalier. Yeah, we just say she's a cavalier. It's yeah. easier. Uh, she's three years old. She's our pup. And this is a pup date. So this week, we took Penny out with us. And we were at a coffee shop. And they have these benches against the wall that they, like, you know, allow people to sit on, but also like dogs are welcome to sit on the benches and stuff. In LA, dogs are allowed in more places than not in LA. <laughs> For those of you not LA listeners, yeah, we bring our dogs everywhere. <laughs> Into coffee shops even. I mean, it's like mostly open air anyways, so. Yeah. Um, but anyways, so Zach was sitting there with her and she was sitting on the bench with him. And while they were sitting, these... Two big dogs. What kind of dogs were they? They, they were that stripy brown. Yeah, and They basically looked like a mix of like Boxer, Rottweiler, and... Yeah, just like a big dog mix, big basically. Dog, yeah. And there were two of them, and they looked pretty much the same. They're siblings, a brother and a sister. We see them Yeah, frequently. semi-regularly, yeah. But they're very, very sweet. But Penny has never seen them before. And so these dogs like are three times her size. They are more than that even. And like <laughs> big muscle dogs. Yeah. But they're very gentle. They're very sweet dogs. And so she was sitting on the bench and they come in with their dogs and you see her like perk up. But she had a height advantage because she was sitting on the bench. So she stood up as tall as she could be and like lorded over these dogs. And, and the... she's like puffing out her chest and like, <laughs> yes, I am the top dog now. She's like showing off to them, putting them in their place. And so then they come over and they're like, do you mind if our dogs interact? And we're like, yeah, yeah, go for it. And so they let their dogs like come up to Penny and start sniffing. And they're like putting their noses up towards her. And she is a very dominating dog like that is her mo whenever she wants to be the alpha yeah she refuses to submit so she does the thing where she like 
lifts her head really high and she looks like gives direct eye contact and like sometimes she'll even like swat them with her paw to like put them down lower than her and like all these things so these big dogs are like submitting to this tiny little thing and so she like feels so good about herself and then we're like all right putty that's enough and put her down on the floor next to them (laughs) and they could like squash her with one paw they could literally just sit on her and she'd be gone (laughs) and so then all of a sudden she was like oh no and she was like trying to like keep her bravado up but like getting a little more and more skittish and I was like honey you are a small dog you must remember this they were very sweet to her they like kind of let her be in charge and they were like okay that's what you want to do that's fine yeah she circled around them and smelled them rather than them circling her they were just kind of standing there like like, what's up little girl (laughs) (laughs) anyway she's got a lot of attitude yeah And she doesn't always mix with other dogs well because she wants to be so dominant. Yeah. It's kind of half or half when she meets a dog out in the wild, whether she wants to be its friend or not. Whereas with people, she wants to be friends with all people. Yeah. She wants to be best friends, cuddle buddies in your lap, all over you. So funny. That's the news with Penny. Yes. A good little pup date. So shall we get into this film? Yeah. Why don't you give us a little uh, recap of what is going on with How Green Was My Valley. Yes. Hugh Morgan narrates, looking back on his childhood fondly before everything changed. We see a montage of him walking the valley with his father, with his sister, and with Mr. Griffith. Everything in their lives is perfect. Hugh and all his older brothers still live at home, are cared for by their mother and sister, and supported by their father, William. Their lives begin to change when the owner of the local mine decreases everyone's wages. The workers strike throughout the winter. Mother and Hugh fall into frozen water and spend several months in bed recovering. Hugh's sister marries the mine owner's son. The political strife tears the family apart, and Mr. Griffith mourns the loss of his love, Hugh's sister. Loss meaning not that she's dead, but that they didn't get married. They didn't get married. Uh, Hugh's oldest brother is killed in a mining accident, and on the same day, his child is born. Hugh goes off to school, but is tortured by the other students and the teacher... Mr. Griffith is forced out of the church by the deacons and condemns the town on his way out. As this happens, the alarm at the mine rings out. Another accident. The town rushes to the mine and Griffith and Hugh go down to discover William has been crushed. The film ends sadly, the older Hugh narrating again, still thinking back on the good times they had before all of their troubles began. And that's the film. That is the film. What do you think about this one? It's not horrible to watch. (laughs) After you watch it and you think about it, it's kind of like, why did I watch that? (laughs) There's some good stuff about it. Yeah. It's not like there's anything bad with the film. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. Not your cup of tea. It's in the top 10 of the 14 14 that we've watched. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That is not a compliment. (laughs) Well, I I was going to say it's it's above the middle or in the middle of those 14. Sure. Not as bad as Cimarron. That's that's <laughs> or true. Cavalcade. <laughs> that is also true. <laughs> and to be honest, this may sound shocking, but I would watch the Broadway melody again before I watched this one. That's not that surprising to me. There's like dance numbers in that one. Yeah, that's not a thing that other people who like that's Academy true. Award that films would say. Not a very prestigious thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Although I feel like we're going to get in trouble with a lot of... Uh, film people today anyways because we've got to talk about lots of filmy things specifically citizen kane 
which I know is a, a hot topic. Hot topic. Yeah. So why don't you get us into the ceremony? Yeah, sure. So today we're talking about the 14th Academy Awards, as we mentioned. Uh, they were held on February 26, 1942 at the Biltmore Hotel. Uh, once again, hosted by Bob Hope uh, doing his his stand-up bit. Uh, ceremony is pretty similar to the previous year. Um, a little bit of pageantry, as I mentioned last week, uh, they brought in the element of the envelopes. So Pricewaterhouse is doing all of the voting handling, all of the nomination handling, and also figuring out the winners and securely depositing those envelopes at the ceremony. And uh, for those of you who have not seen clips of like past Oscars, they don't really do it this way anymore, where if you've seen a current one, the presenters basically walk out on stage with the envelope. Whereas in the past, it was a big deal to have a representative from Price Waterhouse on the stage with the envelope. And the presenter would walk out on the stage and then say, may I have the envelope, please? And get the envelope from the representative on the stage. That was yeah. like part of the order of ceremonies. Well, and if you remember all the hullabaloo over the last like five years of leaks and all kinds of discrepancies and stuff like that, that was like an overextension measure mm -hmm. to like really protect the secrecy. And and that lasts for a few decades. Mm -hmm. They do that. Um, but that is not the way that it's done. They just have the representative backstage give it to the, the presenter. presenter to walk out with. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, we've talked about that. That's the way it's going to be. We can leave that in the past now. Great. This year, there was a new category added. Um, this is the first year they introduced the concept of best documentary feature. Mm. Um, they didn't do a full category for this year um, for feature-length documentaries, but they did give it out as a special award with the intention of instating this category for the following year. So Got it. 1943, the 15th Academy Awards, they do have a category with nominees, all that kind of stuff. For this year, they gave this award to two films um, as an honorary award uh, to the film Can and the film Target for tonight. And I thought it was interesting because these were both films about World War II, mm -hmm. which is a pretty common theme. I was looking through some of the like short subject documentary films that were nominated this year, and like 60% of them are about World War II. They're mm -hmm. like all about different refugee things and the armed forces and all kinds of stuff, the, you know, the military defenses going on, all that kind of stuff. Um, so Kukan was about the Chinese resistance to Japanese forces during oh, World War II, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, and Target for Tonight is about the British Air Force in World War II. Well, and I wonder if the advent of this like documentary style and Obviously, people were making documentaries at the time, but I bet their popularity grew a lot because of World War II. Oh, absolutely. I well, wonder how, like, without yeah. World War II, what that process would have been like. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of these films, I think, are meant for the people who are at home who may not be involved in the war yet, either people who have family members that are involved in the war or, you know, that kind of stuff to give a taste of what's going on, to also bring awareness to what was going on in different countries because they're is a lot of misinformation going around at the time. And so it's an option for filmmakers to share what they're seeing. I mean, there's no internet. There's yeah, no like yeah. instant news cycle. Yeah. So like, that's really the only way that people are getting information besides mm -hmm. the newspaper. For sure. And we'll get into it more as we get into further war years and the relationship between the war and Hollywood. Um, but 
a lot of these films end up being made by people like Clark Gable and Jimmy Stewart as they're in the war. They partner with and Frank Capra. Mm -hmm. They end up making a lot of these films, actually. Yeah. As representatives from Hollywood. Yeah, we're going to get into World War II pretty much next year. So, yeah. (laughs) All right. So just moving on a little bit, uh, John Ford joins Frank Capra as uh, the second director to win three Best Director awards. Um, So he has already won Best Director for The Informer and for Grapes of Wrath. And Mm -hmm. this year he wins for How Green Was My Valley. You can tell there's definitely like a through line with the types of stories he's interested in. So Grapes of Wrath was just the previous year. So he was the first director to win Best Director in back-to-back years. Correct. Yeah. This year, The Little Foxes, uh, which also is a great play, but uh, the film version of this uh, sets a new record of having nine nominations with no wins. (laughs) Yikes. This is repeated by films The Peyton Place in 19... 57 and then it's beaten by uh the turning point in 1977 and the color purple in 1985 which both of those films received 11 nominations with no wins bummer yeah (laughs) not great but that's okay i guess nominations for excellence yeah awards mean nothing anyways yay (laughs) (laughs) so before we get into you know who won what i wanted to talk about the Oscar race for this year because it was a really, really contentious and big year in terms of just like feuds and all this kinds of like weirdly public stuff going on in relationship to who was being nominated and who won and all this stuff. So, well, and we're right in the middle of the golden age. There's also like societal upheaval with the war coming mm-hmm. that's like fueling heightened emotions everywhere but also the past two years have been the biggest most popular years for the oscars so it makes sense that like after 39 with gone with the wind and then 1940 with rebecca Mm -hmm. and there's just a huge slew of other films that were nominated that were huge pictures that didn't win Mm -hmm. and huge actors that didn't win and huge producers that didn't get to have their statue when like (laughs) their rival studios got one. So it makes sense that it's just building and building and building. Well, and we've talked pretty extensively about the Hollywood rumor mill and how that is really a huge thing. And I think in a lot of ways, that is a form of escapism unto itself where oh, for sure. people in the public are just really interested in what these celebrities are doing because it's a life that they're not a part of. And so there's definitely intrigue. There's definitely an incentive for people to stir the pot. And mm-hmm. um, you also gain popularity by being in the news and by being on the covers of magazines and having all this stuff shared about you. People are interested in you then. Well, and that is a big thing into the popularity of Citizen Kane. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is um, our Academy Award nominees, Joan Fontaine and Olivia de Havilland. Sisters. And we talked a little bit about them last week because of Rebecca and um, also because of just Olivia de Havilland's nomination for Best Supporting Actress in 1939 for Gone with the Wind, which she did not win. And then, of course, Joan Fontaine has a Best Picture winner, but not a win for acting in 1940 last year. So they both have Best Picture wins and they both have been nominated and not won yet. (laughs) So... 
as we talked about, they're sisters and they have a lot of rivalry. Zach last week went into a lot about their mom and about the divide that she put between them. And to me, that is kind of the root of all the issues is well, and the competitive just, spirit. Yeah. And just to distill that down, um, when Olivia de Havilland became an actor first, then when Joan Fontaine wanted to as well, um, their mother, Lillian, did not let Joan Fontaine use their actual last name because she thought it would take away from Olivia's success. Yeah. So Joan Fontaine's last name is based on her stepfather. Correct. Um, Joan and Olivia were born 15 months apart also, so they're very close in age. Mm-hmm. And Olivia just got the foot up a little earlier. Um, she's not even that much older. I was so interested because Joan talked a lot about everything in her book, um, No Bed of Roses, uh, where she just like talks a lot about their life, but mostly about her sister. Um, and she claims that Olivia never liked her, that like from mm. a very young age, she did not like sharing attention with her. She didn't like that her parents had to care for both of them. They fought constantly. There was hair pulling, biting, ripping. And at one point, Olivia pushed Joan so hard and jumped on her and broke, well, and fractured her collarbone. Oh my gosh. As like at <laughs> age nine. Yeah. Oh like that's how aggressive it was. And some of my favorite things I was reading <laughs> is that Olivia would scare Joan with dramatic readings of the Bible's crucifixion scene. Oh my gosh. Meanwhile, <laughs> Joan would repeat it back to her mimicking her voice. <laughs> oh my. That was like one of their like strongest forms of aggression. Joan in her book said, and this is a quote, I remember not one act of kindness from Olivia all through my childhood. She so hated the idea of having a sibling, she wouldn't go near my crib. Well, and the other thing, I wonder if it played into it. They were both born and grew up in Japan, Mm -hmm. but then they had to move to America because of Joan's health. So like, yeah, that could have. Been I wonder if that also played too. into it that Olivia really liked living in Japan. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Or Olivia but... didn't want her parents to give Joan all that attention. Yeah, right. You know, speculation, speculation. Um, another funny incident. <laughs> this one really got me. Is <laughs> that at age nine, Olivia received a school assignment to write a make believe last will and testament, and in it she wrote, "quote." I bequeath all my beauty to my younger sister, Joan, since she has none. <laughs> oh, I love Petty. Okay. So moving forward in time. All right. So that's their that's contentious the, like, childhood. Yeah. That's the base of all the problems here. So when Olivia got her agent and she got a contract with Warner Brothers, she was going to set pretty regularly, but she didn't know how to drive. So Joan oh. became her chauffeur. Oh my gosh. Joan had to drive her every day to set. Uh. And Joan resented this. She resented it so badly. But then the other problem was that people would see Joan on the lot and say, oh my gosh, you're Olivia's sister. And they would say, you should be in the pictures. You should be in the movies. Why aren't you in the movies? And of course, this is just so in the seeds, so in the seeds. <laughs> so her mother kept saying, you know, we can't have two de Havilland's. If you want to do this, you have to pick a new name. You have to get a different agent. You have to be in a different studio. You can't do anything your sister is doing oh that is so ridiculous yeah but Joan did it I mean she did so she got an agent and then she got a contract at RKO while Olivia was at Warner Brothers when Gone with the Wind came around this is one of the most like contentious parts of their relationship Joan claims that she was actually being considered for the role of Melanie first Hmm. Um, she actually got a meeting with George Cukor first to Hmm. talk about the role and to be auditioned for it and um, when she was being considered she made some errors. This is from her book. This is a quote from her memoir. 
I made a tremendous mistake and I've always regretted it. Because it was George Cukor, I wore some rather chic clothes. He said, oh, you're much too stylish for the role that I want you to do. And I said, well, what about my sister? And he said, who's your sister? So I explained. And he said, thank you. And that is how Olivia got the role. Ah. End quote. And that is contested because like Olivia never references that. She doesn't talk about it. Well, of course she doesn't. I know. <laughs> of course she wants everyone to think she got this role for herself. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. She was under contract with Warner Brothers. They had to like do a whole under the table thing in order to get her on the film. All this stuff. So mm. that was complicated. And then, of course, she didn't win the Oscar that year. And all that to say, though, she was very good in the film. Definitely. I mean, she was She great. definitely deserved to be in the film. And she performed it beautifully. And, you know, mm-hmm. she was fine in the film. So as we know, last year, um, Joan got her big break with Rebecca. Mm-hmm. And so Gone with the Wind and Rebecca are filming just about the same time, one right after the other, some overlap even, and just one year apart with the Oscars. Of course, she doesn't win Best Acting either. Mm-hmm. So this year, we're up to date now. They are both nominated for Best Actress for the 14th Academy Awards. Olivia is nominated for Best Actor in Hold Back the Dawn, and Joan is nominated for Best Actor in Suspicion. Because they're sisters, they were seated at the same table. Oh, gosh. And so Joan planned to skip the ceremony. She was like, I'm not doing that. No way. Not going to be good. Um, She also thought that her work in Suspicion was not as good as her work in Rebecca. She was really disappointed that she didn't win for Rebecca. And to her, she's like, oh, well, if I didn't win for my role in Rebecca, then I'm definitely not going to win for my role in Suspicion because that was a harder role. It was more complicated, more nuanced. I did a better job. So there's no point in even going. Plus, I have to deal with my sister. Interesting. And, you know, that also goes to show into like the inner workings of the Academy where a lot there's a lot of speculation on how they think and vote and like, well, she could have won for that. Yeah. And, and she's done all these other good things. And now this is a good film to have her right. win. Kind of like Leonardo DiCaprio. I was just going to say, we've seen it happen a bunch of times with, and even with like Gary Oldman where it's like, did he deserve to win for Winston Churchill? Maybe, I don't know. But he's done so much work that I feel like that plays into that kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, or even when yeah. J.K. Simmons won for Whiplash. I mean, oh, this no, is, he was awesome in Whiplash. He was, Don't but get me started. Th- this conversation comes up constantly when there's somebody who has been nominated more than twice. Whose body of work is good. Right. And eventually they got to win. But it's this is all a part of the politics exactly. of the behind the scenes of the Academy and how they end up deciding what should win or what shouldn't win. And Yeah. Well, anyways... Joan decided that she was not going, but Olivia showed up to the set of the picture that she was working on with a dress for her. Oh, weird. And was like, go to the ceremony. And the fact that her sister offered her this made Joan say, okay, I'll go to the ceremony. Personally, I think that this is a tactic. I think Olivia thought she had it in the bag. Yeah, she wanted her sister to be there yeah, while exactly. she won. <laughs> of course, that's speculation. I don't know. But that's how she got her to come. Um, then at the ceremony, of course, we know... Joan wins for suspicion. So this is a quote from her autobiography again. She says, I stared across the table where Olivia was sitting directly opposite me. Get up there, get up there, Olivia whispered commandingly. Now what had I done? All the animus we'd felt towards each other as children, the hair pullings, the savage wrestling matches, the time Olivia fractured my collarbone, all came rushing back in kaleidoscopic imagery. My paralysis was total. Oh my God, I've lost prestige with my own sister. 
And it was true. She was haughty to me after that. (laughs) So like, I can just picture the whole scene. Like I can just imagine how scary it is to watch your sister just like coil into herself and like the fear of like, I've ruined everything. This is the end of all that stuff. She felt that she couldn't celebrate. That was one thing Joan talked about pretty extensively for two reasons, partially because of her sister, but also because people kept coming up to her and telling her how she deserved to win for her role in Rebecca. They kept saying, like, that's what you deserved it for. Like, I'm glad you finally got your award. And so she didn't feel like she had earned it, which is a tough thing. So that's where we're up to. You know, they had a complicated history for the rest of their lives. They didn't get along. Olivia ended up moving to France in the 50s. And they didn't see each other again until their mother's uh, funeral when she passed away in 75. And even so, there was problems then. Olivia barred Joan from coming to the funeral. And then Joan threatened to take that to the media. And the only time they interacted was when they passed their mother's urn to each other to scatter her ashes. Oh, my gosh. And like, that's it. And, you know, I found this quote um, that I thought was really funny from Joan Fontaine at 96. She died three years after this quote. She says, Olivia has always said I was first at everything. I got married first. I got an Academy Award first. I had a child first. If I die first, she'll be furious because I'll have got there first too. Oh, boy. And then uh, after her death, Olivia responded to a lot of the stuff that had been going on. And she uh, was asked in an interview about the ongoing feud between them throughout their whole lives. And she says, quote, a feud implies continuing hostile conduct between two parties. I cannot think of a single instance wherein I initiated hostile behavior, but I can think of many occasions where my reaction to deliberately inconsiderate behavior was defensive. Dragon Lady, as I eventually decided to call her, was a brilliant, multi-talented person, but with an astigmatism in her perception of people and events, which often caused her to react in an unfair and even injurious way. Hmm. Unfortunately, they never really resolved their differences. I think that there was some form of mutual respect. I think that they both recognize that they were talented and skilled Mm -hmm. and i think that that you know feeds into the whole thing yeah this is the big year for them so i wanted to shine a spotlight on those two sisters who shaped a lot of hollywood roles for women of course and they're the first siblings to really be in it together so yeah and they would both go on to continue to have very critically acclaimed careers and would be very popular until both of them died too yeah for sure That's that. Let's move on a little bit. The last thing I just wanted to mention is Citizen Kane, of course. So best picture winner for this year is How Green Was My Valley. Uh, Citizen Kane was the other strong nominee for best picture. And as people look back in history, most people say that this is one of the greatest upsets in Academy history, that Citizen Kane should have won best picture and maybe even some of the other awards it was nominated for. You know, you can feel however you want to feel about that, I guess. Um, Citizen Kane is not my cup of tea. I don't find it particularly moving. Um, I I recognize that it's an important part of film history, but there's a lot of speculation about why it didn't win. The biggest reason, of course, being the smear campaign that was started by William Randolph Hearst, who is the person that the character in Citizen Kane is kind of based off of Charles Foster Kane is sort of based on this um, newspaper magnate as well. And so like, because he's viewed in such a negative light, 
you know, there, yeah. there's lots of stuff you can read about this. Um, of course, Hearst was enraged by the film and because he had control of so many magazines, was able to ban reviews, advertising, um, mention of it at all on like his newspapers and his radio stations. He even at one point attempted to purchase the rights to the film from RKO with the sole purpose of destroying the negatives of the film so that it wouldn't be seen by the public. Um, he convinced movie theaters not to screen the film, um, at which you know, caused it to sort of fail at the box office. Um, so that was a lot of the main issues in getting people of the Academy to see it. There's also a lot of um, comments about Orson Welles' relationship with members of the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, he was not necessarily a beloved member, mm-hmm. a little bit of a bully, a little erratic, all that kind of stuff. Um, in the end, Citizen Kane only ends up winning one award, which goes to Herman Mankiewicz for writing, which in a way is a jab at Orson Welles himself because there is a co-writing credit, but most of the industry knew that Herman Mankiewicz was the one who wrote the script. And of course, if you want to learn more about that, you can always watch the movie Mank, which came out this year. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, there's lots and lots and lots of think pieces about this whole situation. Many people have said far smarter things about it than I ever will. So <laughs> feel free to look into that on your own time. Um, How Green Was My Valley ends up taking the cake. Yeah. I don't have a lot of thoughts about why this film won. For me, it's an interesting film. I really like any kind of film that's about unionizing and worker strikes, that kind of thing. I always find that to be just particularly moving because I just love the underdogs, the people coming together and doing what they can to fight back and fight for their humanity and their against the injustices of like the rich management. So that's like my favorite theme of all things. <laughs> so like to me, that part of the film was really good. And I also really enjoyed some of the religious aspects of the film where the pastor would speak pretty frankly about how if you're going to be a part of the church, if you're going to claim that you're a Christian, that your responsibility is to social justice and that if you deny that, then you can't claim to be a part of the church. And of course he gets booted out. And of course everyone who wants to unionize is like, they're like, you're a socialist, you're a socialist. Like that's like the worst thing you could possibly be. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, all these things. And I'm like, wow, it just like feels so familiar. It looks so familiar. Some things just never change. And of course the nostalgia of the place that you grew up as a child and was so beautiful turning into a different place by the time you're an adult. That's a really familiar thing too. So Mm -hmm. I think some of that nostalgia plays into why it won. Yeah, for sure. Real quick. I just want to share uh, our award winners for this year before I turn it over to you. So of course the best picture goes to how green was my Valley for, uh, to Daniel F. Zanuck and 12th century Fox best director goes to John Ford for how green was my Valley Best Actor goes to Gary Cooper for Sergeant York. Best Actress, of course, goes to Joan Fontaine. Mm-hmm. Um, Best Supporting Actor goes to Donald Crisp for How Green Was My Valley. Best Supporting Actress goes to Mary Astor for The Great Lie. Best Original Screenplay goes to Citizen Kane, Herman J. Mankiewicz, and Orson Welles. Best Screenplay goes to Here Comes Mr. Jordan. If you recall, of course, Best Screenplay refers to Adapted Screenplay. Right. Sorry, I should have said that first. Best Original Story, which, of course, we've talked about, goes to Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Best Documentary Short Subject goes to Churchill's Island, which, of course, is about World War II, and as most of these uh, short subject documentary features are. Best Live Action Short Subject One Reel goes to Of Pups and Puzzles from MGM. Best Live Action Short Subject Two Reel goes to Main Street on the March, MGM. Best Short Subjects Cartoon goes to Linda Paw from 
Walt Disney. <laughs> Best scoring of a dramatic picture goes to All That Money Can Buy. And then this is pretty exciting. I didn't really get to talk about this much, um, but we've got a lot going on today. Best scoring of a musical picture hmm. goes to Dumbo. Hmm. This is the year that Dumbo is released to theaters. Hooray. Huzzah. Very cute. Very cute. Uh, we're up to four Disney films now, so mm-hmm. that's pretty fun. Best original song goes to The Last Time I Saw Paris from Lady Be Good. Best sound recording goes to The Hamilton Woman. Best art direction in black and white goes to How Green Was My Valley. Best art direction in color goes to Blossoms in the Dust. Best cinematography, black and white, goes to How Green Was My Valley. Once again, this is kind of another uh, jab at Citizen Kane, which was very renowned for its cinematography. Mm -hmm. Um, Best cinematography in color goes to Blood and Sand. Best film editing goes to Sergeant York. And finally, best special effects goes to I Wanted Wings. There are a couple of honorary awards. Um, Last week, we talked about Fantasia and all the work Mm. that went into that. So Mm -hmm. there's an honorary award given to Leopold Stokowski, for his work on that. Yeah, he was the um, uh, orchestrator and... Yes, all of the, in charge of all the music yeah, stuff. Conducting. Yeah. Additionally, Walt Disney does receive another uh, honorary award in alongside of him uh, for Fantasia. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, I talked about the two honorary awards that were given to feature-length documentary films. Mm-hmm. And this year's Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award goes to Walt Disney. Boy, so many awards for Disney this yeah. year. Yeah. I mean, he's always going to win tons of awards, but this is like the big one. Yeah. This is for the whole contribution of the whole thing. So Well, and this is interesting that it's given out this year in particular following something, a very important event in Disney history that I'll talk about as Yes, well. yes. Of course, not for nothing, it also is following like three years of massive innovation Mm -hmm. because you've got Snow White and then followed up with Pinocchio. And then also you've got Fantasia, which is a different thing. Right. And then Dumbo. So it's like, it's all coming out now. So yeah. Anyways, that's what I have to share about the Academy Awards ceremony. Um, So let's take a quick break and then you can get into the rest of the stuff. All righty. And we're back. Hooray. All right. So um, just some quick things about the year in film of 1941. Um, Some important film births. Faye Dunaway, Jessica Mm. Walter. (gasps) Yay. The world's a better place. (laughs) (laughs) Nick Nolte, Wolfgang Peterson, Bernardo Bertolucci, Julie Christie, Sally Kirkland, and Beau Bridges. Um, Some important debuts. Sid Charisse. Eva Gabor, Ava Gardner, Jackie Gleason, Charlton Heston, Norman Lloyd, Frank Sinatra, uh, Teresa Wright, and then a strange one. You may remember I was like very confused by this because in the previous episode, I said some important film births was Bruce Lee. Uh, he has his debut this year as an infant in what? the film um, Golden Gate Girl. So his father was very um in the film industry. Hmm. And so from basically infancy, he was in films, Bruce Lee. I didn't realize this, but wow. he was carried around as the infant in Golden Gate Girl. Wow. Good for him, I guess. Yeah. So already a long career. Already in films. Um, some film deaths this year, just some ones that stuck out were Joe Penner, David Howard, and Helen Morgan. This year, uh, we've talked about Clark Gable many, many times. So I'm mm. just going to briefly mention him. Can't get away from him. 
So uh, this stage in his career sort of, he's done making like critically acclaimed things and <laughs> is moving on to more like pop films at this point. He has his film Honky Tonk come out. Oh boy. Which uh, is the second best-selling film in 41 behind Sergeant York. Hmm. Um, he was in that with Lana Turner. Um, and he and his new wife, Carol Lombard, described this time as the happiest time in either of their lives. Aw, good for him. So he has like sort of been able to settle down a little bit and they purchase a ranch together and Aww. they're just sort of having a nice time. Having a honky-tonk time. Yeah, we'll hear more about him in future years as well. <laughs> he never goes away. Um, so... As we mentioned before, Disney's fourth animated feature was released this year in 1941 as a way to financially recover from Pinocchio and Fantasia. I didn't really realize the story behind the film. Um, It had the second lowest budget ever for a Disney animated theatrical release and is the shortest theatrical release at only 64 minutes. Um, It only cost half of what Snow White cost and only a third of what was spent on Pinocchio. Wow. And they did this because they just really needed to make some quick money back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was easily a financial success, and it is considered to be the best-selling Disney film of the 40s. Okay, wow. Um, even though it came out in 1941. Um, and I'll come back to this at the end as we tie in... Put a pin in it. Why, why <laughs> things win and cultural conversations. Another really kind of bizarre thing that happened in 1941 with the film industry is that in the fall of 1941, there was a secret Senate subcommittee created to investigate whether Hollywood was creating propaganda to influence the American public into joining World War II. Oh my gosh. So at the time, a lot of America and most of the Senate in America and people in politics um, were considered isolationists. Yeah, I mean, that's so as World sense. War II was starting, America was basically like, well, we're not involved in any way, so we should stay out of it, which nowadays sounds very un-American politically, because now America just wants to get involved in everybody's business. America's very involved in conflict. That is true. Yeah. Um, and World War II was extremely profitable for America. I mean, yeah. World War II basically made America the richest nation on earth. Mm-hmm. And so this has sort of started this weird thing. Um, uh, there are a lot of isolationists, this idea that America should stay out of other things yeah. because of World War I, um, mm. because America had no business in World War I at all. They were would not have been affected by it on American soil sure. at all. It's more because of the allegiances to these countries um and also the great depression changed a lot for american politics and american people and american business and a lot of the idea was like we'll just keep our business relationships going on with people elsewhere in the world but we need to not spend money we need to not um we need to recover from the great depression by not getting into a war yeah well you can't really afford to get into a war that you can't Right. Fund. Um, so they started these hearings. They really, these isolationists really um, were against Hollywood. Um, there was a faction that basically said um, Hollywood is all run by Jewish people. And these Jewish people started making films. And we've talked about this in um, the Life of Emile Zola episode, the 10th Academy Awards. 
where most of the studio heads at the time were Jewish immigrants to America. Funny enough, Jewish or German immigrants. Right. And many of them started making some films about World War II, about um, Germany. We had The Dictator come out recently, Charlie Chaplin film, very critical of uh, Nazi Germany and of um, Hitler. But at the time, when you look back, only 5% of all the films coming out before World War II had anything to do with World War II, with World War II politics, with Hitler, with Nazism, or anything. So a very small number of films. Um, but these people, were uh, because they were anti-Semitic or whatever was motivating them, um, were thinking that these Hollywood elites were really big in their britches and were trying to influence America to get into a war for some reason. Mm. Um, and they thought that that was like their sole purpose, like Hollywood was Hollywood conniving. Hollywood always has a and, sole purpose, some evil plan that all of Hollywood is in on. Yeah. So <laughs> these people, uh, and they tried to get this group together and then they were not given the funds and they didn't go through, but then they formed this secret subcommittee and they got a little bit of money to start doing some things. And they even started some hearings in the beginning of September of that year. And it was very unorganized because it was hush hush. Um, but by the end of September, the subcommittee had run out of the funds that they had. <laughs> so oh like, within only like three weeks, this thing fizzled out. And of course, it was completely overshadowed only two months later when in December, of course, uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor and then America immediately declared war and had to be involved at that point. Um, I'm just rolling my eyes. And so this little blip was kind of forgotten, of course, until later uh, American politics and uh, Hollywood really get commingled when they mm. have the um, they have the House Committee on Un-American Activities, which, of course, starts the Red Scare yeah. and all of that kind of nonsense. I am so sick of all the censorship. Yeah. Uh, people, people. Yeah. All right. So those are the things that are going on in 1941 in Hollywood. Okay. So let's turn now to the film, How Green Was My Valley? Um, so the budget and what they grossed is kind of disputed, kind of lost to time. Um, apparently, the budget was somewhere around a million dollars for the time, which is sort of like beginning to be the new average for mm -hmm. like a film of this caliber. Um, before in the 20s and early 30s, people were spending around 400000 on a film like this, whereas now it's about a million dollars. You know, and inflation is going up as well, but also people are just spending more money on film. Um, and then this grossed between four to seven million in its first run. So it was very, very successful. And it was in the top five of best-selling films for this year. Um, it was based on a book by Richard Llewellyn, with the same name, How Green Was My Valley, published in 1931. It quickly became a bestseller. Um, he claimed that it was based on his life and that he was he was descended from Wales, but never actually lived in Wales. Hmm. Um, and that wasn't found out until after his death. Oh, my. And it was like this big story, apparently, after he died. Yeah, that... how could he tell this story if he never lived in Wales? I, I don't know. It's literally like the central point of the film is the fact that it's set in Wales. Yeah. So there's that. Okay. Um, he ended up <laughs> writing three sequels to this that were not as successful, but they followed Hugh um, moving to Argentina, his life in Argentina. Uh. And then the fourth book, um, 
he came back and it was called My Green Green Valley. Oh my gosh. And oh my <laughs> gosh. He came back and the valley that he had lived in before, it was the first time he ever came back and yada yada. Yes. It was green again. Was the again Argentina the... one like, how brown were my mountains? <laughs> no, um, they didn't have the, the green. They or the... should have. <laughs> There's something about the moon and something else. I don't know. Oh my gosh. Anyways, they didn't matter as much and... So if you okay. really love this story, go back and read those. Mm. Um, this is the most successful adaptation of this. It was adapted many times and referenced in, in pop culture. Um, there was uh, a reference and a uh, porn film. Oh, no. Made. I, no I don't want to know. You can surmise as to what the title may have been. Oh, my gosh. Uh, we don't have to go there for our family <laughs> listeners, but yes. I'm sorry, Mom. Anyways, yes, this was the most successful adaptation. <laughs> and uh, more, more successful. Yes. Produced by Daryl Zanuck, as you mentioned, at 20th Century Fox. He purchased the rights to the book for 300000 which is a huge sum to pay for rights at this time. Um, Linda Ferber still holds the record up to this point um, for her sale of Cimarron. And Noel Coward was paid similarly for Cavalcade to wow. Cimarron. What a bunch of winners. Um, <laughs> but remember, the most recent adaptations that won Best Picture are Gone with the Wind and Rebecca, and those were both only purchased for 50000 each. Yeah, that's crazy. And this was purchased for 300000 So a lot of the budget immediately goes to that. Um, Zanuck was convinced that he had the next Gone with the Wind, um, and his ideal world was uh, making a four-hour social epic in Technicolor. Oh, yeah. Do it. Do it. <laughs> um, so the studio heads at Fox were very nervous about location shooting because it was all supposed to be shot in Wales. Um, and of course, the war is happening in England at the time and all across Europe and across the world. And so they basically said location shooting is out of the question. So he began location scouting in Southern California and settled on Malibu. Of course, Malibu looks nothing like Wales, so shooting it in color was also going to be out of the question. Um, because Definitely not green in Malibu. Yeah, it wasn't going to look correct. And also, a lot of money was going to be saved doing it in black and white as opposed to doing it all in Technicolor. Sure. There's also something artistic about doing a memory piece in black and white. That kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, I think maybe looking back on that now, we may have that view, but like more of the pictures purely are, financial at the yeah, time <laughs> more of the pictures are being shot in black and white still um so throughout the process and this may come as no surprise uh Zanuck really struggled to get an adaptation written that he liked um a lot of writers had their hands on a script of this at one point and it really went back and forth they couldn't figure out how to adapt it properly um the first writers that were assigned to it wrote a script that was way too long and too much about the socio-political stuff and didn't have as much about the family. So there was not really anything to hold on to. Oh, sure. And at the time, other producers on the lot were worried that the film was going to be basically an anti-England propaganda piece and come across as very unfavorable to England, which is funny looking back on it now because like that really has nothing to do with it at all. Yeah, well, and it felt very similar to a lot of the strikes that happened in the 80s. Well, and they were just worried that because it took place in Wales and it was about 
you know, union and non-union labor that basically because that's where it took place, it was going to look like propaganda Hmm. as opposed to like, this is just a general story that we all like see ourselves in. Sure. That's not the way. Anything can be propaganda if it has an opinion though. Yeah. Um, So Zanuck hired originally William Wyler to direct and Wyler um, did all the pre-production on the film. Um, So he brought in the actual uh, writer who ended up getting credited, Philip Dunn, to take a pass at the script. Um, Then Wyler also did almost all of the casting. They auditioned a bunch of kids for Hugh and only tested um, four kids before they ended up seeing the fifth. The casting director told them, quote, you don't want to see this kid. He's bandy legged. He's not attractive. (laughs) And he has a turned eye. Poor kid. And of course, he was talking about Roddy McDowell, who ended up getting cast. Um, Weiler completely disregarded this statement because he really liked McDowell so much that he flew him to Hollywood and he did a test for Zanuck and Zanuck immediately signed him after the test. And this was a very like chance discovery for them, this actor, because once they liked him so much, they decided that Hugh should only be a kid in the film. Um, whereas in the book, he grew up in the book. Okay. So he ended the book as an adult, Hugh, the narrator. Well, that's why I think they do all the narration then. Right. So they decided that um, once people saw his performance, they would like him so much that they wouldn't want to see him as an adult. Which is true. I actually really liked watching him. Yeah. So this also solved their problems with the script. So it allowed them to cut over a third of the script out as well, which was him while he was alive. Yeah, that's good. Did not need to be any longer. Yeah. So Tyrone Powell had already been cast at this point to play the older Hugh. Um, So after they cut his scenes, as I said, more than a third of the film, um, they just kept him on to do the voiceover parts. Ah, gotcha. Um, and then Weiler also cast Walter Pigeon as Griffith. And Zanuck and Weiler met together with several women to play Angharad. I d- don't know how to pronounce her name. Sorry. Um, the sister. Yeah. Um, and they both really wanted Catherine Hepburn, um, but that didn't really work out. Eventually, they ended up casting Maureen O'Hara, um, even without a screen test. They just had a conversation with her and really liked her. Hmm. Um, she was also fresh off her U.S. debut in um, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Nice. And um, her casting is interesting because it really instituted a new kind of film deal that could be made um, because she was a contracted player with RKO at the time. So RKO and Fox worked out a deal to share her contract so that she was technically contracted to both studios. Oh my gosh. So she would do a number of RKO films, but also every year she would do one Fox film. The whole studio model is not working out. Yeah, slowly devolving uh, at this point. So upper level execs at 20th Century Fox were very worried with the choice of Weiler. Um, He was known to take a long time, extra days. Mm. Um, His films would go on shooting forever and tended to never meet their budget. Um, So they put the project on hold and then fired him. And Zanuck was pretty upset by this but was determined to make the film work. Um, So he ended up suggesting his friend, John Ford, and they liked him. Um, John Ford was known for being under budget and for delivering films quickly. Um, So he ended up getting paid 100,000 for the film, and he immediately sent Ford away with Dunn, the screenwriter, um, 
to get the script ready for shooting as soon as they could. Since they weren't able to film on location, they had to create this whole Welsh town. Zanuck had a whole scale Welsh town built in the mountains near Malibu. Oh my goodness. To shoot. Um, And during publicity, Fox advertised that the Welsh choir they brought in for the film immediately got on set and started weeping when they saw that the town looked so perfectly like theirs. Oh, brother. So no one knows if this is true or not, that the Welsh choir wept when they saw how accurately their town was portrayed. Wow. Um, But that is what Fox liked to say. All right. They also had several hillsides in Malibu painted black to imitate the coal mountains. Oh, my gosh. How was that allowed? I don't know. I just thought that was pretty weird. That's wild. Um, And they actually brought in loads of coal to make the mines. So, Like coal is just this thing you can just grab and go with. Yeah, they they did. They brought in like several like boulders of coal um, to like build the mines. That is expensive. Yeah, extremely expensive. Um, So besides the choir... Um, Reese Williams, who played Di Bando, the boxer, was the only actual Welsh actor in the film. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. All the other actors are either British, uh, Canadian, or American. Oh, okay. A couple other just random things during the making, a very sad story, Anna Lee, who played Bronwyn, had become pregnant during the film and didn't tell John Ford. Um, and then when she did the collapsing scene after <gasps> her husband died... She it ended up causing her to have a miscarriage. No, oh, that's so sad. And John Ford was horrified when he Aww. like heard that this had happened, um, and was like so upset and was like distraught that he would not have done that, like had her fall Aww. over in a, that way, or had directed her to do something else had he known. They would end up going on to make several films together. She was yeah. in many of his future films and he would always pull her aside basically every day she was on set (laughs) and ask her if she was pregnant so that he didn't like do something to harm her or that she was like taking care of herself on set huh questionable (laughs) (laughs) i i don't think you're allowed to do that but okay but they they were at least they were friends friends. yeah Yeah. and like at least it's kind of good natured i guess yeah oof But yes, that was a very unfortunate thing that happened. This is also one of the first Hollywood films that used extensive narration successfully. And Mm -hmm. like a film... Moderately successfully. Well, well, the film was successful, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, as you mentioned, this is another film that has sort of like the most progressive um, like church character. Yes, I have to say I am impressed by that one aspect of the like religious stuff in it. Yeah, it's still considered like one of the most like progressive religious figures yeah. in like any Hollywood film. Well and it's really. very rare too to see a like a a church leader who then goes against his congregation too. Like his congregation is feeling one way and he is like, you know what? I can't change your minds and so then I just have to not be here. And there are very few church figures, especially post World War Two, that would subscribe to anything that wasn't very, like, capitalistic as well. Mm, totally. As capitalism and conservative uh, American religion uh, sort of, like, intertwines itself throughout sure. the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, up to present day. 
Yeah, I was very impressed with that aspect of the film, for sure. Another major aspect worth noting is the idea, and John Ford does this a lot more in other later films after this, but sort of the idea of like the um, untruthful narrator in a way, Mm. um, because we are given a very rosy view of whatever life was like before the film. Sure. In the shots, like the montage of the opening film, even though the coal plant exists, we're not showing the coal plant where his, his view is so rosy looking back that like, it's only of like the flowers and the The shepherds and yeah. And this idea that like all is not as it seems or that like your memory is often tainted. Also childhood is different than adulthood. When you're a child, you get to go lay around in the flowers all day. And when you're an adult, you go work the coal mine. And at the beginning of the film, we're told that the church is like the most perfect place. Yeah. Whereas later in the film, we're led to believe that the church has a lot of problems. Yeah, there's disunity and corruption and... And even with the character that Walter Pigeon played, Griffith, the pastor, he is very strong-willed in some moments, but very weak-willed in mm-hmm. other moments. And so it's just a more nuanced picture of the characters, mm-hmm. who the characters are, what they are, how they're perceived, mm-hmm. and like in their moments of strength and weakness. Yeah. I was also really impressed with the storyline about the sister who was in love with the pastor because mm-hmm. they don't get together. They don't get married. She marries someone else, mm-hmm. and like that's just what it is. And that's like... She just has to deal with it. They both have to just deal with it. Yeah. And just to highlight some other strange differences between the book and the... So I mentioned that in the book, um, it ends with him as an adult. Right. Um, In the book, there's also like four sisters as opposed to just one. It's a big family. Yeah. And then also in the book is uh, sort of a detailed scene of Hugh's first sexual encounter. Well, I don't think they would have been allowed to show that. Right. <laughs> yes. Coming of age in all ways, I guess. Yes. So those are just some differences, and that's what I have about that film. Just want to highlight some other things um, with Citizen Kane, just worth mentioning because it's considered such a great film still. Um, Orson Welles at the time was very new to Hollywood. Um, He had started the Mercury Theater as an independent rep company on Broadway and quickly had the reputation of like a young storytelling genius. Um, He also did the famous War of the Worlds radio broadcast. Right. Um, (laughs) That's what I know him from the most, honestly. And it's sort of in legend now whether or not the story is that people didn't realize that it was actually a radio broadcast of War of the Worlds and people thought that like, it was actually happening when they turned on their radio. Of course, that's like famous mm, legend, legend around yeah. <laughs> this idea. Um, so he was courted by the Hollywood execs at the time and ended up getting an exclusive and like unheard of deal at RKO, who gave him exclusive control over everything, including cast, crew, script, uh, story, and the final edit of whatever film he was going to make. And basically said, we're going to pay you X amount of dollars to make whatever film you want to do. And this was really looked down upon by other studios at the time, um, other people in Hollywood. He initially wanted to do an adaptation of The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad hmm. that was going to be shot entirely in first person. Oh, boy. Um, he just had this idea that that was going to be really amazing. 
which ended up being why there was several first-person shots in mm-hmm. Citizen Kane. Um, but he could not get an adaptation or the story settled for this. Um, so he ended up settling on the Citizen Kane story. And then he brought his entire rep company from New York to act in it. Um, ten of the actors were former Mercury Theater actors who had never been in a film before. Mm. So when I mentioned the debuts, I should have mentioned Orson Welles and like all of the cast of Citizen Kane. <laughs> um, but anyways, several of them went on to have pretty good careers, especially um, Joseph Cotton. As you mentioned, the cinematography is usually one of the things that is highlighted in this film. The use of deep focus and camera movement and techniques were considered very revolutionary. Um, But just to mention, because people don't often say this in this conversation, Greg Toland has already been doing a lot of these types of shots. He's the cinematographer, and he was nominated for this film. Um, He's already doing a lot of these experimental type shots, um, most notably in Mad Love, which came out in 1935. So if you were to watch that film and compare it to to Citizen Kane, a lot of the same shot. Like, it looks very, very similar. Mm -hmm. Um, He also had done um, cinematography in other classic films prior to this, where many of these techniques can also be seen in Les Mis, Dead End, Splendor, Wuthering Heights, Grapes of Wrath, etc. And he'd already been nominated for Les Mis, Dead End, Wuthering Heights, which he won cinematography for, and The Long Voyage Home. So he didn't need Orson Welles or this film to be considered great. <laughs> yeah. Just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. Like you can tell that his cinematography lends itself to a certain tone and like certain style of film. And so like a lot of those films, I like I can understand how Wuthering Heights and Citizen Kane could have similar style cinematography. Right. Um, another person actually <laughs> worth mentioning who didn't get a lot of credit during the making of this is Maurice Siderman, who's the makeup artist. Um He is not in the union at the time and was only an apprentice for RKO at the time of filming. But he was actually the one who created all of the makeup effects for Wells, for uh, Kane. At the time, Mel Burns, who was the studio makeup head, so for the union for makeup artists at the time, only the makeup head for the studio was the one who would get credit in the film, like on the credits of the film. Mel Burns really did not do anything for this film, and he was the one that was going to receive credit, and Wells didn't like that, so he decided to not put a makeup credit in the film at all, which was also a big no-no for the union. Um, But instead, he took out a newspaper ad that said, thanks to everybody who gets screen credit for Citizen Kane, and thanks to those who don't, to all the actors, the crew, the office, the musicians, everybody, and particularly to Maurice Siderman, the best makeup (laughs) man in the world. Oh my gosh so this Messy. yeah was a big problem uh also like went against union rules that they didn't have uh, makeup artists credited in the credits of the yeah film. um even <laughs> though the one who was supposed to get credit didn't actually work on the film uh anyways um of course you mentioned the controversy with william randolph hearst and a lot of this controversy is due to his publicist luella parsons right Honestly, probably none of this would have happened without her. (laughs) Um, People go back and forth on knowing whether or not Hearst actually cared that much. Sure. They said that he cared a lot. Um, He was quoted various times saying that it was horrible. He's also told private audiences that he loved the film and thought it brought him a lot of popularity, which of course it did once all of this nonsense went out. And it also brought the film a ton of more popularity, publicity, 
way more than it would have gotten. Well, and even in history, way more now than it would have gotten if this hadn't happened. Correct. Um, it ended up being one of the first films ever purchased for television rights, mm. um, which is why it ended up getting more popular. You mentioned he tried to purchase it, um, <laughs> potentially. Um, also, Louis B. Mayer and other studio execs got together and offered RKO $800,000 to get rid of the film. Wow. Because they were worried at the idea that basically somebody not involved with Hollywood. Yeah. Could, could just come in and completely ruin something like this. Yeah, I yeah, they're very protective of that at the time. And what had was happening also was the more censorship, this yeah. weird subcommittee in right um, the Senate. Well, and the last thing you want is some big press guy to be allowed to censor you because he doesn't like how he's being portrayed. Right. Also worth mentioning. Can you tell we don't really like this film? I'm sorry. Yeah. Is the idea of this film is past like. The long, epic, whole-life stories, like, that type of film is done now. True. So this is, like, made a little... That idea of the story. Other things may have been more revolutionary that led to future um, things in the industry. But the idea of the story is already done in Hollywood. Yeah, we've talked in the past about several of these Best Picture winners that start when the person is a young person and go all the way up through their death. And the last scene is their, their death scene. That is an early 30s style film. Yeah, you know? Hollywood is moving on at this point from yeah. that style. They're moving into more of an epic that starts and ends within a short period of time. Maybe there's a lot of events that happen, but it's a very condensed time period. And also stories that focus more on sociopolitical things yeah. that are currently happening. Yeah. Anyways, why did this film that won one? Um you surmised some things. Yeah. Um, another thing that I'll just mention is the union, sociopolitical striking mm -hmm. and all of that. One thing in the Hollywood atmosphere happening at the time that I didn't mention before um, with the making of Dumbo and Disney. And this is kind of not known anymore because of like the rosy view of Disney. There can't be any darkness in Disney. In the middle of 1941, there was a huge Disney animator strike. Um, basically, all of the animators struck because um, mostly stemming from Snow White, most of them had put in unpaid overtime hours mm. because they believed in the movie and they believed in Walt Disney and they believed in what they were doing, making the first well, feature there film. there was no money then. And there was no money to pay them. <laughs> And they all worked under the promise that they would get a bunch of the returns mm -hmm. from the film, yeah. that the film was going to make a bunch of money, and it did, and they did not get any of it. Oh, no, 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 no. So most of it went back into, you know, making Funding future Pinocchio projects, yeah. and not to paying the people who actually made the film. At the time, also because of Snow White, there was a screen cartoonist guild that was forming. And Disney did not recognize this guild. Um, many of the animators were actually in it and, quote unquote, protected by their union. But he did not recognize its existence and didn't care about that. Tisk tisk. So this led to a strike during the uh, creation of Dumbo. Also because they were trying to spend as little money as possible on Dumbo. So many of the senior animators were not allowed to work on it because they were going to be paid too much money. 
That's um, literally what happened in How Green Is My Valley. Yeah. <laughs> so there were other animators. Reflection of the times. Who could work f- for a lot less money because yep. they had less experience uh, and they were willing to take time. less money. God. So the strike lasted for five weeks. Um, and That's not very long. No. Well, it was literally right in the middle of the making of Dumbo. So, so it's like hitting where it hurts. Yeah. Um, and it was quickly successful, luckily, because they were making Dumbo at the time. The Disney animators were actually some of the lowest paid animators in Hollywood. Um, the animators at Warner Brothers were actually paid more than Disney. Mm. So they, the animators at Warner Brothers, actually dressed up as French revolutionaries. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. And <laughs> uh, waved French flags and marched from Warner Brothers to the Disney studio, which is right down the street, yeah. to offer their support. <gasps> Amazing. So the first couple of days of the strike, the animators there at Warner Brothers, of course, many of them were friends with the animators at Disney, and they were like, hey, we approve what you're doing. We think it's awesome, and you should get paid more. So we're going to support you by... <laughs> Dressing up as, you know, 1800s French people. Literally all of my favorite things in one place. This is amazing. That is so funny. I can't believe I've never heard about this. I'm sure no one wants to talk, like they don't want anyone to know about it, but that is amazing. Yeah. So uh, as I said, the strike lasted five weeks. Um, It resulted in most of the animators um, receiving an almost 50% increase. Well, good. Which is ridiculous that Disney had that amount of money and wasn't paying them already. Yeah, that's obscene. That is offensive. Um, and it also um, resulted in the union finally being recognized by Disney. Um, unfortunately, it always kept a bad taste in his mouth for these specific animators and Aww. the union. The union animators that worked at Disney while he was there always were the first to be fired. They were always the first to get fired also when they had raises coming up and other people were given their raises instead. And then Disney was one of the first in only a few years to testify in the famous House Committee on Un-American Activities. Um, He testified that he believed several of his current and former animators were communist sympathizers and that that was the reason why they struck, not because they wanted higher wages, but because they were like, spies for communism and then because of that many of the current or former disney animators during the 40s were blacklisted wow and it's kind of not sure why this happened but in dumbo the clowns are striking in the film (laughs) so they don't know if that came because of this strike but most of the silhouettes of the clowns are of the actual animators that <gasps> led the strikes. Whoa. Is that in a positive way or a negative way? People don't really know. They're, they're not clowns, sure. Right. You know? They're not sure if the animators wanted to immortalize them and say like, hey, they deserve to be in this film, like their silhouettes because yeah. they did something good. Or if they were put in there as like punishment like these people need to be immortalized as the people who ruined disney or something well here's what i'll say about it clowns deserve rights too and so if they want to unionize they should unionize and i think it's an honor to be a clown silhouette (laughs) and so this is a thing in culture that's happening across the board in all businesses yeah Uh, there were a lot of union chefs who came to help support these animators who fed them every every day um who just came up 
and set up shop there to make sure that they could stand Aww. outside all day long and be fed. Solidarity. Solidarity. And, you know, the other unions in the industry at the time were very supportive of this. They really wanted to make sure that the animators could make the money that they deserved. Um, and, of course, the Warner Brothers animators helping as well. You know, that all plays into How Green Was My Valley. Yeah. And this is happening not only in the entertainment industry, but also in other industries in America. Mm -hmm. And I mean, most of the guilds that are in the film industry have formed within the last couple of years anyways. Yeah. it's And it's a, just a popular sentiment among people. It's why the book sell, sold so well. It's why the movie yeah. sold so well. Well, and coming out of the Great Depression also, people are realizing that they don't need to be mistreated. They don't deserve to be mistreated. And then if they band together, then they can make a better life for themselves. And that's what makes me really emotional about unionizing. And I'm very proud of the animators for doing it. Yeah, that's why this film won. I think, you know, Hollywood knows and the Academy knows that they are helping to inform culture by sure. pushing forward what they want to push forward. That's We've true. mentioned this many times before yeah. that, like, that's part of why the Academy exists in the first place. Yeah. Well, yeah. And we talked about that a lot last week with, you know, talking like awarding a thriller that is kind of out of the norm, you know? Yeah. And one of the things that I also think is important to remember always is that the Academy is biased because it's made up of people in the film industry. Right. It's made up of the branches of the industry that go into making these movies. So all of the people that are voting on these things are very biased by the people that they know, like they know each other and mm -hmm. like there is community there. And so I can see in this case, like, you know, as we look back, people are like, how could that film have won? It wasn't the best film. But if you look at the social and political context, it makes a lot of sense, especially for people who were in the throes of these things. Yeah, for sure. So at the end of every episode, we like to give our thanks to the Academy for things regarding things in this episode. Uh, what would you like to thank the Academy for this week? Um, well, I mean, genuinely and sincerely, the first thing I would like to thank the Academy for is unions. Yeah, funny how at the beginning, um, the Academy was formed as like a union busting tool. Yeah. But they came around to their way of thinking. Once all of the industry was unionized, yeah. they didn't really have a choice but to be positive about it. Yeah. And, you know, those are the things that provide protection, solidarity, and force people in power to give people the respect, the wages, the rights that they do deserve. Because without that labor, things don't happen. Mm -hmm. Everyone matters and everyone's job matters and everyone deserves protection, safety, rights. Anyways. <laughs> uh, as a funny thanks on a more humorous <laughs> note, I would like to thank the Academy for the woman who had one line in this film and she said, divorce. Oh my gosh. The <laughs> maid, I yes. think it was. Because of course- Divorce is a bad is thing. Highly looked down upon uh, by the code at this time, and so it, it's funny that they could e were even allowed to say divorce or hint at divorce in this yeah. film. <laughs> and then, of course, all the little old biddies had to whisper about it. Yeah, so silly. It just really it was, caught us really, off guard. She like really looks dead into up. the camera, and she's like, "Divorce." <laughs> I would like to thank the Academy for sisters, <laughs> sisters, sisters, 
specifically Joan and Olivia, who had a very, very tumultuous relationship and uh, contributed individually great things. And I wish that they could have had a better relationship, but alas. Yeah. That's how it goes sometimes. And, oh, one of the things that I actually meant to say that Joan was quoted as saying uh, in an interview uh, when she was later in life, she was quoted as saying, quote, you can divorce your sister the same way you divorce your husband. Oh. Yeah. Mm. So that's how she viewed their relationship as they got older. Just Mm. a little throwback to that. Yeah. I would like to thank the Academy uh, for not choosing Citizen Kane to win. I think that was the right choice. Sorry, all you Citizen Kane lovers out there. Yeah. But. Don't eh. come for us. It And the fact that it did or didn't win didn't change anything. Like, this goes in to show what we have been saying. Words don't really matter. No. Obviously, we want them to matter because of this podcast and want <laughs> you to think they matter. But they don't really matter. And what matters more than what actually wins is the context in which they win. Right. Which is the whole episode today. <laughs> and of course, it probably, you know, added even, it adds more to the conversation that it didn't win. It adds to its popularity and the, everything. I would like to thank the Academy for scary readings of the crucifixion story oh, by Olivia, Olivia de Havilland, <laughs> matched with mimicking tales of the crucifixion from Joan Fontaine. Uh. That is just so funny. Too hilarious. I I love a petty feud. It just is so good. Sorry to keep harping on that. <laughs> well, that's the show, folks. Yeah, that's it. Uh, as you said before, I'm not sure that this is the best film we've watched. Uh, as far as they, as I'm concerned, I don't think it's something you need to go out of your way to watch. If you're into these sociopolitical themes from a film in the 40s, it's definitely worth a watch, though. Sure. Yeah. I would say, I mean, to me, it feels like a slightly better version of the life of Emil Zola in the sense that like... It's, slightly? It's way better. Okay. It's way better. Film. It's way better. Okay. I agree. But it's like, it's very important and it has a yeah. place in film history and it's worth it if you're like interested in that. Um, But, you know, unto itself is just kind of fine. Yeah. So... Well, join us next week when we discuss the 15th Academy Awards and the 15th Best Picture winner, Mrs. Miniver. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.